What is going on everybody? My name is John Solo and I have cried an embarrassing number of times leading up to this episode. That's because today we're covering the messed up origins of The Iron Giant, a movie about a young boy's friendship with a misunderstood murder machine. It's a beautiful film that asks an intriguing question. What if a gun had a soul? How would it feel about what it was made to do? And if it had a choice, would it want to be something else? But then there's the book that it's based on. The Iron Giant, originally titled The Iron Man, was written and published in the UK back in 1968 by Ted Hughes, the namesake of the movie's protagonist, Hogarth Hughes. It shares the same anti-war, anti-violent sentiment as the movie, but the storyline goes in a very different direction. The audience's main concern is no longer the friendship and safety of Hogarth and the Iron Giant, but instead the future of our planet in the end of civilization as we know it. Chapter 1. The Coming of the Giant Chapter 1 is titled The Coming of the Giant, but I would argue that's not a very accurate name for it. The giant is already on Earth when the book starts, and similar to the movie, we're given absolutely no information about where he comes from. He's a total mystery to the reader and narrator. As a matter of fact, we aren't told where or when the story takes place either. The movie is set in Rockwell, Maine in 1957, pretty much immediately after the launch of the first man-made satellite, Russia's Sputnik 1. But the book keeps the details vague, which in my opinion makes it all the more timeless. All I can say for certain is that it's not set in Australia, Japan, or China, and you'll see how I know that later on. So the book opens with a giant standing on the edge of a cliff. He's seeing the ocean for the very first time in his life and scanning it with his infrared eyes. The gentle ocean breeze is whistling through his great big iron fingers. The setting sun is reflecting off his bedroom-sized head, and after a moment of contemplation, he takes a great big step off the cliff onto nothing. This proved to not be such a great idea. The Iron Giant went crashing down the steep cliffside, smashing into rocks and trees, and by the time he hit the bottom, his body had broken into a hundred pieces. And that, my friends, was the end of The Iron Giant. Kidding. Just like in the movie, this giant can reassemble himself, but it's not quite as simple as sticking up an antenna and calling all of his appendages back to him. Instead, the individual pieces, which do glow blue like in the movie, have to be gathered from around the beach and put back together one at a time. So when some seagulls mistake the giant's eye and hand as a clam and crab, the reunited eye and hand jump out of the nest and start searching for the remaining limbs. Slowly but surely, they join forces with an arm that's stuck between rocks, a leg that's been buried in the sand, and before you know it, the Iron Giant is almost complete, except for one ear, which he can't seem to find anywhere. Back at the top of the cliff, some more hungry seagulls are poking at the missing ear with their beaks, but apparently the giant can't hear that. So, assuming the ear must have been stolen away by the ocean waves, he lumbers toward the sea with his eyes glowing green until he's completely submerged and no one would have known he was ever there. And while the scene is very different than his entrance in the movie, I think the writers and animators did a great job capturing these same vibes and themes in a way that's a lot more visually engaging, all while maintaining that ocean setting. Another difference is that in the movie, the giant crash lands on the earth from space, and later we see a dream sequence where an entire battalion of metal men conquer a planet, implying that he may even be from a different galaxy. The book doesn't even give a hint about where he came from though. In fact, the very first chapter opens by saying, how far had he walked? Nobody knows. Where had he come from? Nobody knows. How was he made? 
nobody knows. Thus ends chapter one of five. We've officially been introduced to the Iron Giant and we already wanna know more about who he is and where he came from. But this story is just getting started and the next chapter will be introduced to Hogarth. And I think you're going to be surprised to hear how different he and the Giant's friendship is compared to the film. Chapter two, the return of the Giant. Chapter 2 opens by focusing on Hogarth, who in this version is not the son of a single mother and deceased military pilot. Instead, he has the classic nuclear family, a mother, a father, and a little sister. We're introduced to the family at the very start of the chapter. Hogarth is hanging out in the woods, fishing in a stream, when he sees a pair of bright green glowing headlights shining down at him from the top of the cliff. Initially, he's confused about why and how headlights would be up there, but when they start to move, he realizes those headlights are the eyes of the Iron Giant. Immediately, he bolts home to warn his family about the massive metal monster he just saw, and you might be surprised to hear that, unlike his mom in the movie, they all believe him. His father even goes so far as to grab the shotgun off the wall and set out in the family truck with Hogarth to try and track it down. Initially, their search proved to be a failure. Somehow, some way, the giant had disappeared without leaving any evidence he was there. Funnily enough, it wasn't until they gave up and turned the truck around to head home that they found their first clue illuminated by their headlights was a tractor that was bitten in half. Remind you of anything? Hogarth and his father were starting to feel a bit nervous. This tractor had literal teeth marks in it. Even crazier, they had passed by the same tractor just a moment before and it was in perfect condition, meaning that whatever did this had to be close by. Suddenly, two glowing lights appeared above the tree line and a big metal foot the size of a bed crashed down in front of the truck. With only a split second to react, Hogarth's father threw caution to the wind and floored it, smashing his truck directly into the foot and sending the Iron Giant toppling over. Neither Hogarth nor his dad had the courage to look back though. They kept their eyes forward and drove straight home, content to wait until the sun was shining to do any more investigating. By the next morning though, the damage had already been done. Just like in the movie, the local farmers all had equipment that was either bitten into or utterly destroyed, which had them all concerned about what might happen if the metal menace were to return. What would he eat if there was no more delicious metal? In the movie, this is around the time we meet Kent Mansley, the federal agent responsible for investigating the giant and finding enough proof to convince the government to send the army to destroy it. In the book, the citizens of the nameless town don't even bother contacting the government because they know no one will believe them, a similar problem that Kent Mansley faced. Instead, they take matters into their own hands and lay a trap for the beast. Using the few pieces of construction equipment that hadn't been chewed up yet, they dug a hole wider than a house and as deep as three trees, one on top of the other. Then they covered it with branches, straw, and soil, so it appeared to be a freshly plowed field. After that, they put a rusted old truck by the pit to act as bait, which funnily enough, also made its way into the movie. When Hogarth and the giant are looking for scrap metal he can eat, they find a rusty old truck that looks pretty delicious, but it gets taken to the scrapyard before he can eat it. Well, spoiler alert, the giant in the book doesn't get to eat the truck either, but not because he fell into the pit. It's actually the opposite. Weeks had gone by and the giant wasn't even seen in the area, let alone near the pit. And after a while, the owner of the truck decided that he needed it and took it back. That pit took a lot of effort to be made though, so the locals didn't bother filling it back up. 
Instead, they put out a warning sign so that no one would accidentally step on it and abandoned it. At this point, Hogarth comes back into the story and has his first direct interaction with the giant. But if you were expecting it to be a heroic moment like in the movie where he shuts off the power grid and basically saves the giant's life, you're going to be pretty disappointed. Considering the pit's original purpose to be over and done with, Hogarth figures he could use it to catch a fox, and he lays out some new bait in the form of a dead chicken. Only while he's waiting for a fox to appear, the Iron Giant once again shows up at the top of the cliff. Here's the issue though, the giant is slurping up some barbed wire fence like it's spaghetti, and that fence goes nowhere near the trap. So Hogarth realizes it's up to him to lure the giant into it. But how was he going to do that? He reached into his pockets and an idea came to mind. A terrifying idea that he was almost too scared to try. Hogarth pulls a utility knife and nail out of his pocket and clinks them together. The sound of delicious metal catches the giant's attention and he starts lumbering toward Hogarth and Hogarth continues to clink them together and slowly reposition himself so the pit is between he and the giant. Then the giant took one step too many and fell into the darkness below. And when Hogarth peeked over the edge to check if it survived, all he could see were two red eyes staring back at him. This would be a pretty terrible moment to learn the giant could fly, wouldn't it? Well, unlike the movie, this giant is stuck on the ground like the rest of us. So Hogarth takes his chance to rush home and tell his dad the news. Within a few minutes, farmers from all over town showed up at the pit's edge to get a good look at this metal menace. And the menace stared right back at them with his eyes changing from red to purple to white, then a fiery black and red. Figuring they shouldn't push their luck, the farmers then jumped on the digging equipment they had hidden nearby and pushed the dirt down onto the giant burying him alive while his cogs and gears screeched and roared. When all was said and done, the pit was filled to the brim, the dirt was packed down, and the giant screams had been muffled out of earshot. And suddenly, Hogarth began to feel guilty about luring him into the trap. That's a pretty crazy twist, right? Instead of saving the giant when he first meets him like in the movie, he does the opposite and traps him in a way that's both humiliating and terrifying. Imagine falling into a pit, your captors surrounding the pit to point and laugh at you, then being buried alive. That is what this poor giant was subjected to. But as you're about to see, the story only gets darker from here. Chapter three, what's to be done with the Iron Giant? A few months after the giant was buried, his grave became a local attraction. Not because it was his grave, most people didn't even know that, but actually because a beautiful grassy hill had grown from the freshly packed dirt and families like to go there for picnics. Only one family's picnic gets a lot more exciting than anticipated when the earth below them begins to split and a massive metal fist bursts out of the ground. The parents immediately pick up their son and daughter and run for it. Meanwhile, another iron fist explodes out of the earth. A few moments later, the Iron Giant climbs out of his would-be grave, pulls himself onto the surface, and basks in his newfound freedom for about 0.2 seconds. Then his stomach starts rumbling and he helps himself to every scrap of metal he can find. Cars, houses, fences, silos, he wasn't picky. It all tasted delicious after months underground. Before too long though, he experiences what all of us have at one point or another a food coma, and after devouring a few school buses worth of metal, he finds a comfy place among the trees to take a nap. Now, it wasn't long before the locals found out the Iron Giant had gotten free. That's the kind of news that travels fast, 
and at this point, the majority of them were ready to call in the army. But Hogarth, still feeling guilty about trapping the giant all those months ago, suggests a different plan that they begrudgingly agreed to give a chance. This time, it wasn't hard for them to track the giant down. They simply followed the wreckage and chewed up metal like Hansel and Gretel's breadcrumbs and found him resting in the forest. Then Hogarth cautiously approached the giant, apologized for tricking him, and offered to make a deal. If the giant agreed to stop eating the townspeople's property, they would show him where he could find all the free metal he wanted. Well, there is nothing the Iron Giant cares about more than a tasty snack. So he followed the farmer's lead and found himself in a land so incredible, he thought he was dreaming, the Scrap Metal Yard which fans of the movie will remember, is the same place that Hogarth hid his giant from Kent Mansley, his mother, and the people of Rockwell. Immediately after arriving, the giant starts chowing down. Chrome stove, solid steel bed frames, he had never had such delicacies before. And as time went on, these higher quality metals actually improved his complexion. His eyes became a constant happy blue, his rust went away, and his body shined like it was brand new. The scrap metal yard was heaven on earth for the giant. But before too long, he would be forced to leave it. Not because he wanted to, but because he had to save our planet from an untimely and unnatural end. Chapter 4, The Space Being and the Iron Giant So while I was reading this story, I noticed a pretty fascinating parallel with the film. Remember, in that version, the Iron Giant has a mysterious visitor from outer space, and one of the primary themes of the movie is how humans react to the unknown which, as it turns out, is mostly with fear, panic, and violence. Well, the same thing happens in the book, but the space invader isn't the Iron Giant. It's a monster that can only be described as... Well, you'll see soon enough. See, one night, some astronomers observed that one of the stars in the Orion constellation was getting bigger. Then the astronomers realized that's because it was getting closer racing toward the Earth. Then, just when the world's leading minds began preparing for a meteor collision that would obliterate our planet, the star froze in place. Just hanging up there was this bright red glowing orb the size of the moon, and no one knew what to make of it. Then, when a small black dot appeared on the orb, they were even more confused. Before they knew it, the dot was getting bigger, and bigger, and bigger and soon they could see the dot had wings. Was it a bat, an angel, a flying lizard? No one had ever encountered anything like this, and for one horrible night, the entire sky was filled with these dark black angel wings. The next morning, the monster landed on Australia with a crash that reverberated around the planet. Statues in California were split down the middle, teacups in London were sent flying off the table, and the whole world could finally see that their visitor was a mighty dragon or as the book calls it, a space bat angel dragon. And this thing was no joke, even though it kinda sounds like it. It was so huge that it covered the entire continent. And we're told that while people in Australia's valleys were safe, anyone that was on a mountaintop was squashed flat. Rip. This monstrosity sat there for an entire day, making everyone wait in suspense before he announced why he had come. The dragon demanded to be fed. Fed what? Living things. People, animals, trees, it didn't have a preference. But if it didn't eat soon, it was going to use its tongue longer than the Trans-Siberian Railway, about 6,000 miles, to lick life right off the surface of the Earth. When the governments of the world heard this, they knew immediately what to do. For the first time in Earth's history, they said, screw our borders, get every weapon you have, and point it at that thing. 
Unfortunately, this didn't have the results they were hoping for. Despite combining all of their firepower and shooting it with missiles, bombs, and flamethrowers for the next several hours, they didn't even make a dent in the dragon's scales. And when the smoke cleared, he was actually smiling. At that moment, it seemed that all hope was lost. They had no way to defend themselves against this unstoppable force. And if they didn't feed him in one week's time, they would all be dead. Just like everyone else in the world, Hogarth was paying close attention to these events, and he couldn't help but think that the Iron Giant might be able to help. The giant may have been a small fry compared to the dragon, but there had to be something he could do, right? Well, when Hogarth went to the scrapyard to ask the giant for help, the giant ignored him. He didn't want to get involved in humans' affairs when he could stay comfortable in the scrapyard and eat all the metal he wanted. Hogarth had to lay down some truth, though. Without humans, there wouldn't be anyone left to make his scrap and at that moment, the giant realized this did involve him after all. Then, with his eyes blazing blue, green, black, and red all at once, he stood up, turned to Hogarth, and declared that he would go out as the champion of the Earth against the monster from space. Chapter 5, The Iron Giant's Challenge the next chapter opens with the Iron Giant once again breaking down into pieces, but this time it was intentional. He had to be flown out to Australia on several different airliners because he was too big for any single plane to carry. Also making its way to Australia were two great big shipping vessels. One came from China carrying a surplus of steel beams and the other sailed from Japan filled with fuel. After arriving on the beaches of Australia and being reassembled, the giant lets out a mighty mechanical roar that gets the dragon's attention. Then he challenges him to a test of strength. Anyone else picking up Norse myth vibes from that or is it just me? The dragon can't help but laugh at the proposal because this little iron guy is so tiny in comparison to him, literally smaller than one of his eyelashes. But the dragon also knows that if he turns the challenger down, he'll look like a coward. So he asks about his terms. The Iron Giant replies that if he wins, the dragon will be his slave and have to follow any and all orders he gives. And if he loses, well, the whole world will be forced to accept their fate as the dragon's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It wasn't exactly a fair bet. After all, the humans already proved they couldn't defend themselves against the dragon, but ever self-conscious and not wanting to look like a coward, he accepted. And so the challenge began. The engineers who sailed over on the shipping vessels dug a huge pit, not so different than the one the giant was once trapped in. And then they laid the steel beams over it to make a grid. After that, they filled the pit with oil and set it ablaze. The giant then laid down on the grid, folded his arms behind his head, and smiled up at the dragon while the fire and flames surrounded him. And there he stayed, enduring scalding hot temperatures until all the fuel had burned away, at which point he was glowing white hot. After cooling down to a reasonable temperature, the Iron Giant says, Now it's your turn. Let's see if you can get white hot like me. Once again, the dragon lets out a booming laugh and says, Fine, build me a fire and I will, knowing that'd be damn near impossible. But... When he realizes the giant is pointing at the sun, he suddenly feels a very cold chill run through his scales. The dragon did not want to sit on the sun, but what choice did he have? That was the only fire big enough for him, and if he quit now, he would be the giant's slave. So the dragon takes off, and the whole world watches as the little black dot against the sun changes from orange to red to white hot. Finally, he returns to Earth with a mighty crash, and saying he looks awful would be an understatement. His horns are drooped, his face is wrinkled, charred, and black, his claws are scorched blunt, 
and his wings have holes in them. But that was only round one. The giant orders the engineers to start a new fire for him. And once again, he lays on it until he's white hot this time melting his ear in the process. The dragon is so horrified by the idea of enduring the sun's flames a second time that he doesn't even bother talking smack. He silently flies back to the sun, tortures himself until he changes color, and flies back to earth. And this time, he's on death's door. His wings have turned to shredded rags, his skin is crisped, and all of his fat has been changed by the sun's fire into precious jewels. The Iron Giant feels no pity for his adversary though. Remember, this thing wanted to devour men, women, and children. So he orders for a third fire to be made, and finally, finally, the dragon breaks. The once fearsome beast actually begins to cry and says he can't stand it anymore. He'll be the giant slave and do whatever he wants as long as he doesn't want him to go back to the sun. Now this is where the moral of the story starts to come into focus. The giant asks the dragon what he can do since he's now his slave and the dragon admits that he's totally useless. All he can do is fly and sing. The dragon then tells the giant about the music of the spheres. Apparently all star spirits like the dragon sing and that is what makes space so peaceful. The giant then asks, if you're so peaceful, why did you come to earth to try to eat all of us? To which the dragon replies, I could hear your battle cries from all the way up there and it sounded like fun, so I wanted to join in. After hearing this, the giant gets an idea. Wanting to put the dragon's limited skill set to good use, he orders him to fly through the sky and make space music for mankind every night. And get this, the music sounds so strange, so blissful, that humans all over the world lay down their weapons and start working together. From that point onward, all anyone wanted to do was listen to the peaceful music from the giant singer in space, which I imagine as some chill lo-fi beats. After that, the Iron Giant's mission was accomplished, so you can probably guess what he did next. He returned to the scrapyard, where he had countless delicious thank you gifts from humans all over the world waiting for him. The Moral of the Story So I don't know about you all, but when I heard this story for the first time, I couldn't help but think, what? This is the one? This is the book that inspired Brad Bird's emotional roller coaster? The movie that makes me cry harder than when my so-called friend left my hollow Charizard in the rain? Don't get me wrong, the first three chapters had a decent amount in common with the movie's first and second acts, but the last two chapters go completely off the rails. Instead of facing off with the United States military and a nuclear bomb, the giant puts his life at risk to challenge a space bat angel dragon that's bigger than Australia. How am I supposed to connect these dots? Well, outside of the certain doom that both scenarios presented, the overall stories have a common theme, mankind's reaction to what we don't understand. In both the book and the movie, all of the adult characters just assume the Iron Giant has bad intentions. This is despite him hiding in the area for weeks without hurting anything that wasn't made of metal. It takes the innocent mind of a child to think of the giant as anything other than a weapon or a monster. This widespread paranoia is emblematic of the time period the movie takes place in, which is also around the same time the book was published, the 50s and 60s, near the beginning of the Cold War. Russia had just launched the first ever man-made satellite, Sputnik 1, adding a sense of urgency to the space race and leaving Americans feeling susceptible to the superior technology of other countries. When director Brad Bird began writing his version of how the story should go, he pondered, what if the fear and anxiety folks were experiencing back then was justified? 
What if there really was a catastrophic threat looming just beyond our reach? But then he took that idea a step further. You see, years before he started working for Warner Brothers, his sister, Susan Bird, was the victim of gun violence at the hands of her ex-husband. And unfortunately, she passed away. This tragedy, naturally, had a deep and long-lasting impact on Brad. And when he encountered Ted Hughes' Iron Giant story, where the supposed metal menace actually had his own wants and needs, a question entered his mind. What if a gun had a soul? How would it feel about what it was made to do? And if it had a choice, would it rather help people instead of hurt them? This is where the giant's heroic sacrifice comes in. A similar pro-pacifist message could be found in the book, but it's exemplified a little differently with the incorporation of the dragon who, as we learn, is not naturally a violent or malicious creature, but was simply corrupted through its exposure to warring humans. Once again, we're told that humans' inability to live peacefully with the other will continue to corrupt and lead to our own destruction, a message that, in my opinion, resonates just as deeply today as it did in the 90s and 60s. If you've been on any form of social media lately, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, or a Reddit comment section, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is constantly this pressure to align yourself completely with one side of the political spectrum or the other, to the point where having a simple conversation with someone who supports an idea or belief means that, in the eyes of the public, you too must support that idea or belief. In reality, you might totally disagree with it or not care either way. You're just intellectually curious and you understand the more ideas you expose yourself to, the more informed your conception of the world and your place in it actually is. But to the masses and pathetic internet journalists, none of that matters. What matters is that you don't have the correct opinion. So instead of having some humility, hearing you out and maybe learning something in the process, they're gonna build you up into this monster that doesn't even remotely represent who you are or what you believe but will be how the public perceives you from now on. That's exactly what happened when Kent Mansley called in the army to kill the Iron Giant. His blind commitment to his own ideology and inability to see the reality of the situation almost caused the deaths of thousands of innocent people. And if we're not careful, if we keep focusing on what makes us different instead of the same, we're gonna end up blowing ourselves to bits. And in the real world, there won't be an Iron Giant to save us. But now it's time for me to get off my soapbox and pass the mic to you, Solo fam. What do you think about the messed up origins of the Iron Giant? How did these stories make you feel? Do you agree with me about the book and movie's messages? And if I told you there was a sequel called The Iron Woman, would you want me to cover it? Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first.